All right, come on in, have a seat. Uh, glad to have everybody here with us tonight. If you are able to join us in person, we're glad to have you. Glad that you decided to come out uh, and be with us and to study God's Word together. have a few uh, health updates uh, that we want to make sure you're aware of. Keep these people in your prayers and your thoughts as you go throughout the week. We have a lot of people that need uh, very serious prayers from us and to be lifted up uh, to the throne of God on their behalf. And First of all, we have prayers of thanksgiving that we want to share tonight with all of you. Uh, Bradley Clark's wife, Denise, uh, received great news uh, after her surgery last week. No cancer was found. And I know many of you have been praying about that, have been lifting her up in your prayers. Wanted to make sure you knew that update and praise the Lord for that. We'll make sure you uh, are also aware of Trudy Morrison. Uh, she had a stroke, uh, but the good news is that there have been no lingering effects found from that stroke. I believe she's 94, Bob was saying, and it's just amazing that the Lord blessed her uh, through that stroke and another prayer of thanksgiving for her. We'll be praying for Dwayne Holbrook. Uh, that was brought before us this Sunday with his cancer. Also, Bob Elliott with his cancer. We have many uh, in our family here that have COVID, have coronavirus. Uh, we want to be praying for them, lift them up. Uh, want to mention specifically Stephen Lewis and his mother, Deborah, as they're battling coronavirus. Uh, just pray for this whole congregation, really, uh, that there be no further spread. Some of our youth have it. Some of our other families have it. So please be praying for that. We we'll also mention Sharon Rogers and some health difficulties she's been having lately, as well as Jim Henson. So please keep all of those in your hearts and in your minds as you go throughout the week. You can also visit the health update page on the website for any other update uh, or to give a request for us to be praying about. I want to mention next, uh, this, excuse me, this weekend, uh, this Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, we're having what we're calling Charge Weekend uh, at 7 p.m. on Friday and 7 p.m. on Saturday, and then our normal times uh, on Sunday morning. We're going to be having Bruce McClarty, Dr. Bruce McClarty from Cookville, Tennessee, the former Harding president is going to be with us talking about the God of more, and we're going to be kicking off our study on what it means to be more, to engage more, to invest more, all those different things that Kyle talked about a few weeks ago. Uh, on Sunday, we're going to have Bible class in here, all adult classes will be in here at 9 a.m., worship at 10 a.m., we're going to have a fellowship meal, all of the, all of the meat's going to be provided. Uh, we just need you to bring size, desserts, and drinks. And then we're going to have a, a 1 p.m. service, and Dr. McClarty is going to close out Charge Weekend at that 1 p.m. service. We're very excited. Uh, we're very excited to have him especially join us this weekend. Please make plans to be there. It's going to be great. It's going to be uplifting. That's why we call it Charge. So I want to also make you aware that the GSOP short course is going to be held here at Buford uh, that's been rescheduled. The new dates are Friday, January 14th from 7 to 9 p.m. and Saturday, January 15th from 8.30 a.m. to 3 p.m. Breakfast and lunch is going to be provided. The topic is knowing God. The instructor is going to be Eric Owens from the Avondale Church. We love him. You can audit or credit the class, and a sign-up sheet has been left in the Involvement Center. With that, we're ready to go to God in a word of prayer before we open up his word. Let's pray. Dear most kind and gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for the day that you blessed us with, for this period of Bible study that we're about to have. Thank you so much for 
your word. We pray that as we open up your word tonight that we can put, a, put aside all of the uh, cares of this world, that we can put aside all of our preconceived notions and all of our opinions and feelings and strictly look to your word for guidance, for your will for our life. Help us to find it, help us to search it, help us to obey it. Thank you so much for your word and especially the life of your son that we've been studying these past couple of quarters with Kyle. Uh, we thank you so much for this congregation. Help, help us as we try to live closer to your will each and every day and as we try to be more and to do more. Thank you for Jesus Christ, and it's through him that we pray. Amen. All right, so obviously I'm not Kyle. thought I'd sit to where I could be his height tonight. Just kidding. He's watching from home. That's what you get. He would have said something about me. It's my turn. So, I am sitting tonight because sometimes I make the online watchers seasick walking back and forth. So I'm going to be stationary tonight. Uh, but Kyle, he was exposed to someone that had COVID, so he's trying to be uh, very careful uh, as to not spread that, especially with this weekend looming. So that's why he asked me to fill in tonight. He's been methodically taking all of us in the Wednesday night uh, uh, auditorium class through the life of Jesus on Wednesday nights. He's been comparing, contrasting all of the life events throughout the gospel accounts, seeing the similarities, the differences, and how ultimately, even though there are differences, it all does fit together consistently and inerrantly. Even though we find differences in the gospel accounts, even though it was written by different authors for different audiences, for different purposes, we can still see that these accounts are inerrant. And isn't that an amazing fact about the Word of God? It's, it's really amazing to study the intricacies within Scripture and how one author will choose to include this story or, or include this phrase and the other author chooses not to. Truly no other book comes this close or even close to the legitimacy the power and the amazing nature of the Word of God. Tonight we're going to be continuing that study in the life of Jesus by turning our attention to the healing of the centurion's servant. You can find this moment in Christ's life in Matthew chapter 8, verses 5 through 13, and also in Luke chapter 7, verses 1 and 10. These are the two passages we're going to be flipping back and forth from tonight. Some scholars have even noted a, a lot of striking similarities between these two accounts of the centurion's servant being healed as well as what John has to say about the nobleman's, uh, or the, the nobleman's healing in John chapter 4, verses 46 through 54. Perhaps this is the same event. I don't believe so. I believe there's too many differences, too many uh, things that are inconsistent with, within the different accounts to say that this is the same story. It's just another amazing moment that happens in the life of Jesus in John chapter 4. But tonight we're going to be focusing on Matthew chapter 8 and Luke chapter 7. But before we get into the text tonight, before we open up God's Word, have you ever seen a moment that just blew you away? Sometimes we watch movies or we read books or, or we see something that truly blows our mind especially when someone winds up being the hero in the story that you had no idea they were going to be the hero. 
whether it be the entire time throughout the book or the movie, they've been the enemy, or perhaps you just didn't know enough about the person, and then all of a sudden they just are the total hero of the story. And they steal all, all of the attention away from the main character for this one moment, and, and it becomes amazing because you truly never imagined it coming from them. First one I was thinking of when I was preparing this lesson was Neville Longbottom. Now, some of you are saying, what in the world just came out of his mouth? Neville Longbottom. It's a person, okay? A person in a book called Harry Potter. All right, hold on. If you don't like Harry Potter, we're going to be talking about Lord of the Rings. Same things, but my mom was okay with Lord of the Rings, not Harry Potter. Explain that. But anyway, we look at Harry Potter, and Harry Potter has this character named Neville Longbottom. Neville Longbottom all of a sudden comes out of nowhere after however many books of being this nerd, this loser, this guy who just could never do anything right. And then all of a sudden, he is the very one that pulls that sword of Gryffindor, right? Pulls the sword of Gryffindor and slices the snake's head in half and kills the Horcrux, right? And it's this amazing moment because you just never expected it to come from Neville. This guy who's been made fun of and, and, and bullied all these years throughout school, now he's the guy? All right, Lord of the Rings people. Gollum? Gollum is the guy who actually puts the ring into the ring of, in, into the Mount Doom, into in the fires of Mordor. Of course, he fell into it himself, but he is the one that, if you think about it, took care of the ring and, and destroyed it finally. If you want a real-life example, I can give you one of my high school kicker. You know what? As a football fan, I don't really like kickers, especially as an Alabama fan. There's too much trauma when you think about kickers. Kickers often let you down. They have one job, and then they go up there and they flop. Well, my mom always said, Lord be with that kicker. I, can't, I couldn't imagine what would it be to be his mother. And so I got a story about a good kicker. It was my high school kicker. He had never done a good thing athletically in his life. All right, he played soccer, so he, was, he said, okay, I'll just be the kicker for the football team. That doesn't mean anything get on the football field, you don't have any idea what you're doing. But we had a kicker, okay? And he didn't kick a single kick all year long because we were just scoring touchdowns. But it came time for him to finally kick a field goal. And that came when there was two seconds left on the clock. We were driving down the field in a playoff game. All right? And if he makes this field goal, we go to the next round. If he misses it, there's my senior year, it's over. And this little scrawny kid, I'm telling you, you could blow hard and he would fall to the ground. That's how skinny he is. He steps up to that, that moment and kicks a 47-yard field goal to win the game. It was wild. Everybody stormed the field. This guy is a legend to this day, and he has one kick to his name, and that's all it took. Because he came out of nowhere and completely blew everyone's mind. And sometimes we don't expect people like this to come out of nowhere and do this type of stuff. But man, when it happens, it's inspiring. It's awesome. And oftentimes it evokes emotion. 
from those who see it. And we have one of those moments in our study of the life of Jesus tonight. We have one of these moments that is inspiring, that is truly awesome, that evokes emotion from our Lord when He saw it. And that is when this centurion comes across the Lord. When we see faith from a source that you would have never imagined having it, that is the moment we're having tonight. And Matthew and Luke both record that Jesus marveled at this centurion. The last thing I'll say before we get into the text, the stories themselves, is we're going to be looking at the different accounts, Matthew and Luke, and what they have to say about this this moment in the life of Jesus. Matthew and Luke, as you might know, are two out of the three synoptic Gospels that you can look at of the four Gospels. Uh, So you see that Matthew and Luke are written, and they're called synoptic. Well, you might have been in church your whole life and not know what in the world synoptic means. You might just take it for granted. You might just sit there all these years and never search out what the word synoptic means. And so I want to just make that very easy for all of us tonight. Synoptic means similar. They, they look the same. They look very similar in their content, in their themes, in the, the, the chronology that they have. And so when you look at Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they are known as the synoptic gospels because they're that similar in, in all the things that they say about the life of our Lord. John, on the other hand, is not known as a synoptic gospel because it's drastically different from the other three. That doesn't make John any better. doesn't make Matthew, Mark, and Luke any, any, any less. It just makes it different. And what we have to realize is each of these authors have a different audience. They have a different purpose for the things that they are saying and the moments that they are including you look at the book of Matthew, it's evident that he is writing to a Jewish audience. So he's going to include all of those prophecies being fulfilled more than any other gospel writer does. You look at the book of Mark, it's easy to find that he's talking to a Roman audience. You look at the book of Luke, he's, he's writing to a Greek audience. And you look at the book of John, and he's writing to the church in general. And so when we see these differences throughout this whole a couple or two or three quarters that Kyle's been looking at doesn't necessarily mean that we need to assume contradiction. Instead, we need to examine the intention of each of the biblical authors of the gospel accounts. With that, let's go ahead and start our study tonight in Matthew chapter 8. That's where we'll start. Matthew chapter 8, verses 5 through 13. It says, Now when Jesus had entered Capernaum, A centurion came to him, pleading with him, saying, Lord, my servant is lying at home paralyzed, dreadfully tormented. And Jesus said to him, I will come and heal him. The centurion answered and said, Lord, I am not worthy that you should come under my roof, but only speak a word, and my servant will be healed. For I also am a man under authority having soldiers under me. And I say to this one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard it, he marveled and said to those who followed, Assuredly, I say to you, I have not found such great faith, not even in all Israel. 
And I say to you that many will come from the east and west and sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the sons of the kingdom will be cast out into outer darkness. There will, will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then Jesus said to the centurion, Go your way, and as you have believed, so let it be done for you. And his servant was healed that same hour. Just like Kyle usually does in his study this past couple of quarters, let's go ahead and read Luke's account of the same moment in the life of Jesus. Luke chapter 7, verses 1 through 10. You're going to notice a lot of differences, uh, a lot of similarities, and everything in between. Luke chapter 7, starting in verse 1. Now when he concluded all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. And a certain centurion's servant, who was dear to him, was sick and ready to die. So when he heard about Jesus, he sent elders of the Jews to him, pleading with him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they begged him earnestly, saying that the one for whom he should do this was deserving. For he loves our nation and has built us a synagogue. Then Jesus went with them, and when he was already not far from the house, the centurion sent friends to him, saying, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy that you should enter under my roof. Therefore I did not even think myself worthy to come to you, but say the word, and my servant will be healed. For I also am a man placed under authority, having soldiers under me, and I say, to one go and, go, and he goes, and to another come, and he comes, and to my servant do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him, and turned around and said to the crowd that followed him, I say to you, I have not found such great faith, not even in Israel. And those who were sent, returning to the house, found the servant well, who had been sick. So let's make some observations about these two different accounts in Matthew and Luke. Again, as we said, there are a lot of differences. There are a, a, a lot of similarities, and there are a lot of themes that are maybe a little bit different than they are in the different accounts. But the first thing I want to say about this uh, story in the life of Jesus is that this is the only miracle that is recorded in both Matthew and Luke that does not also appear in Mark. Let me say that again. This is the only miracle in the life of Jesus that Matthew and Luke have that Mark leaves out. So this is interesting. This goes back to this synoptic problem. Why do Matthew and Luke include this story in the life of Jesus, this miracle of Jesus, but Mark leaves it out? This is what scholars research and they try to figure out uh, and they try to... to understand why Mark would leave something out, why others would include it. But they are the synoptic Gospels. They're similar, but different. Mark's Gospel, if you look at it, it's obviously and evidently the most short Gospel comparatively between all the other Gospels. That's because Mark is not like me. Mark gets straight to the point, right? He, he, he doesn't skirt around it. He doesn't give illustrations about Neville Longbottom. He gets straight to what Jesus did, right? He gets straight to the action. And all throughout the Gospel of Mark, you can see him using the word immediately. Immediately. And he's constantly flowing throughout 
the gospel? Well, Matthew and Luke are a little bit different. Matthew is writing to a bunch of Jewish people that need full understanding, need full explanation. We know Luke has the longest gospel when you look at the word count. And so he's obviously explaining things. So Mark, he simply writes a shorter gospel. Also, when you study this, scholars are more and more emphatically saying that Mark was written first out of all the Gospels. Mark was written first before Matthew and Luke and John. But really, any attempt to discover why Mark does not include this miracle, any attempt to discover that would just be conjecture, really, and assumption. So I'm not going to do that, but it is interesting. I would use the word fascinating. It's very fascinating all the time, right? But it's fascinating. It is fascinating, truly, to look at why these different authors use different stories. But we're going to talk about the stories we do have. All right, Matthew's account is significantly shorter than Luke's. If you look at the different passages, if you flip back and forth, you can see that there's a big discrepancy on the length of this story between Matthew and Luke's. Matthew's is about 124 words whereas Luke's is about 186 words in the original language. When you look at the book of Matthew, remember that Matthew wanted his Jewish audience to know basically the main point of this miracle. The main point of this miracle is not whether uh, the centurion sent elders and uh, the centurion did not go in person, where, where Luke points that out. Matthew's main purpose is to prove to a Jewish audience that a centurion can have better faith than a Jew. A Gentile person in this situation, in this moment, had way better faith than the Jewish people around him. That's Matthew's point. Luke's point is obviously writing to a Gentile audience, wanting to highlight this event a little bit more, because it's a highlight of a Gentile doing something awesome. Right? So it makes perfect sense why Luke's... uh, Luke's account of this moment would be longer. But let's talk about this, this centurion. Again, there's another word. When was the last time you saw that in uh, your everyday life, outside of church? The word centurion. I've never seen it. What does the word centurion mean? Again, one of those things you live your whole life, maybe you never ask questions. I'm not going to get into the depths of what it means, but basically what you need to know is that this is an officer in the Roman army. Okay? an officer in the Roman army that is over and in charge of a hundred soldiers. Centurion, century, hundred, get it? Centurion is what we're looking at here, and they were solely responsible for the discipline, for the recruitment, and for making sure that the orders were carried out. You see, this person is the real, real individual in charge of the growth of the Roman Empire, if you think about it. Because this individual is in charge with making sure individual cities are acting right. Individual cities are obeying the laws, are obeying the rules. They give the commands and they tell their uh, hundred soldiers what to do, and they are the ones that are going along the lines, each and every jot and tittle, and making sure every single thing is done right. That's a Roman centurion. They have a lot of power. Roman centurion is not the height of, of the Roman army, no. But it is a very important rank in the army. 
These were men not at the bottom foot soldier and, and the front of the lines. These were men that told the men in the front of the lines what to do. And here we have a Roman centurion in our story tonight. This guy's pretty high up the ladder and he's not to be trifled with in any other situation that you see in the New Testament of a centurion. And by the way, we find three instances of a centurion in Scripture in a positive light. Can anyone name some? Where do you see a centurion? At the cross. Okay, at the cross we see a centurion, right? When the skies go dark for three hours, when the earthquake comes, and when, when the bodies are coming out of the grave, what does the centurion say? Truly, surely this must have been the Son of God. And so you have this great example of this Roman centurion showing how he believed Christ must have been the Son of God. He saw the evidence around him and said, Surely this must have been the Son of God. There's a good instance of a centurion. The other instance of a centurion is in our story tonight. What's the third? Anybody got a third? There you go. Conversion of a centurion named Cornelius in Acts chapter 10. The first Gentile convert is a centurion. Okay? And so when you look at these uh, examples throughout the New Testament, you might start to think, well, I guess you need to be a centurion to, to be a, a, a faithful child of God. No. But it just so happens that the authors of the biblical text used centurions to show how everyone can obey the gospel. How everyone can be a follower of God, even if you are a Roman centurion. You can follow God. And the same is in our story tonight. By the way, there are more instances of a centurion throughout the Scriptures. Every other one of them is pretty negative in the life of Paul. Those who were beating him, persecuting him, taking him to Rome, those were also centurions. So they're not always great, but in our story tonight, what an example we have. Really, when you think about Roman centurions, again, they are one of the main reasons Rome conquered the world and were the main power of the day because of how awesome they had to be at their jobs. If a centurion was not doing his job, the Roman Empire could have easily been overthrown. They were the peacekeepers, they were the rule enforcers, and here in our story, that's not really the centurion that we read about. We don't see a, a normal, average centurion. By different, I mean really different when it comes to this centurion. So the question is, who is sick? Who is sick that, that Jesus needs uh, to go and heal them? This centurion, it, it must have been someone very important to them. It must have been someone very important, but when you do some study on this, it's very obvious that this was simply a slave. This centurion cared so much about one of his servants, the, the word servant there is doulos, and really means slave. This centurion had a slave that he cared about deeply. 
Now, when we look at the Bible and we look at the, the, the culture of the Bible, we're not talking about the, the same uh, concept of slavery as we think about it in American history. Most of the time we look at the Bible text, you look at the culture of that day, it's more of an indentured servitude, okay? You owe someone a debt, and you're going to work for that person until that debt is paid off, and then you're able to go about your normal life the way you had it before. That's the slavery usually that we find in the Scriptures. But having said that, even an indentured slave, an indentured servant, is still a servant. And it's still a slave, right? So when you look at the hierarchy of, of Jewish culture of the day, we realize that this centurion has no business caring about this slave. If you look at the culture of the day, there, it makes no sense at all why a centurion is caring about the ailment of this servant of his. Because a centurion is the leader of a hundred soldiers. Why would this centurion care about this simple slave? Why would he have this tremendous effort to go and to talk to Jesus about healing him? New King James Version says, A servant who was dear to him. This servant was dear to him. The ESV says this servant was highly valued by him. One commentator said, The fact that this man cared so much for a slave, who would have been looked upon many Romans as mere property, proved his good heart. Matthew tells us that this slave, his ailment was that he was paralyzed and in dreadful torment paralyzed and in dreadful torment. Perhaps he had tons of bed sores that, that were accumulating and giving him this, this tormenting pain. Luke goes so far as to say that his pain was, he was sick to the point of death. So whether he was paralyzed or in dreadful torment or, or sick, the fact of the matter is he's in tormenting pain and is about to die. Even though this centurion did not believe in the law of Moses, it's obvious that he did believe in the one for whom the law was written about. Whom the law was written as a foreshadowing of. The Messiah. Perhaps this centurion had already heard of, of some of the miracles that Jesus had already performed Maybe he witnessed some of those miracles. Jesus had, as Kyle's already studied this, this quarter, Jesus has already done some miracles before crowds. Maybe he was a witness to one of those and he knew that Jesus could heal this person that he valued so much, that he was dear to. But let's talk about this specific centurion. It's great for us to study uh, the 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 background of Roman centurions and their role in the empire. But let's talk about this specific centurion and what makes him different than most of the ones we see. First of all, notice in the scripture that he calls Jesus Lord. 
In Matthew's account of this, he calls him Lord. Verse 6, Lord, my servant is lying at home paralyzed. Now, I don't want to make a mountain out of a molehill. All right? I, I'm not insinuating that Jesus is, is necessarily being called Lord, all caps, by this centurion. I don't think that's the case. The centurion is not calling Jesus Lord, as in all caps, Lord of his life, Lord of heaven, Lord of earth. He's not necessarily saying that. In this time, that same word is used for the word sir. It's a sign of respect, for sure. But it's not necessarily calling him Lord of heaven and earth the way we would call Jesus Lord. But even with that, this centurion calls him sir. And that's just, that's just drastically different than what you would have seen in any other form of life in that day and age. A Roman centurion talking to a Jewish person from Nazareth, calling him sir. Some would say that's absurd when you look at the culture of the day. It makes no sense for this centurion to be showing this kind of respect to Jesus. We've got to realize Jewish people at this time were in Roman captivity. They were in captivity. They were uh, totally subjected to the Roman authority. If anyone got out of line, it was the job of this centurion to make sure they fell back in place. But yet we find this centurion looking at this Jew and saying, Sir, what an amazing showing of respect from the onset of this story that this centurion would look at Jesus and call him sir. Now that might not mean something to us because we see Jesus as the Lord of lords, the King of kings, the Prince of peace. And of course you would call him sir. But in this day and age, it's amazing that this Roman centurion would show him even that level of respect. Luke even adds the fact that this Roman centurion was kind to the Jewish people. What does he say? This man loves our nation. How does he love the nation of the Jewish people? Well, it says that he built them a synagogue. This Roman centurion was in charge of building them a, a synagogue of worship. The elders of the Jewish people, by the way, in Luke's account, the elders of the Jewish people were the ones that told Jesus he did that. It wasn't the centurion going to Jesus and saying, Hey, Jesus, I built your people a synagogue. It's your time to pay up. It's elders of the Jewish people that were sent to Jesus that are the ones that say, Hey, Jesus, by the way, he did build us a synagogue. I just want to make sure you don't think that the centurion is bragging on himself. It's simply the elders that are bragging on the centurion. But what's interesting is, even though he did love the nation of the Jews. Even though he did build them a synagogue, he himself never used that as a bargaining chip. He never used that uh, great deed that he did as a reason why Jesus should do what he's asking to. When Jesus is actually speaking to the centurion, he doesn't give him a list of all of his good works. 
He doesn't give Jesus a resume to read on, on why Jesus should fulfill his wish. He doesn't say, hey, hey, look at all the great things that I have done for your people when I didn't have to. It's your turn. He doesn't use the synagogue he was responsible for building as a bargaining chip. Instead, what does he do? He blows Jesus' mind with his response. What he does next is what makes him like one of those stories we started out at the beginning of class. One of those stories that you simply could not see it coming. And then, boom. This moment that you cannot understand. He says in Matthew, says, I am not worthy. I am not worthy that you should come under my roof, but only speak a word, and my servant will be healed. Luke's account, very similar, says, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy that you should enter my roof. Therefore, I did not even think myself worthy to come to you, but say the word, and my servant will be healed. Why would a Roman centurion ever, in comparison to a Jewish male, be unworthy? Again, he should not have called him sir if you look at the culture of the day. And by no means should he call himself unworthy in the front of someone who is simply a Jew in the day. Wouldn't the one in captivity be the one unworthy to be in his presence? But that's not the case with this centurion. We see this centurion calling himself unworthy for Christ to even enter into his home. Perhaps this centurion understood how the Jews felt about cleanliness. Probably this centurion understood that the Jewish people at the time believed, due to tradition, that you could not even enter into the home or the dwelling place of a Gentile. By the way, that's not in the law of Moses. You look at the Jews of the day, they had the 613 commands. That wasn't enough. In order not to break the 613, we're going to build 300 or however, however many around it as a barrier or offense not to offend that law. That's one of those traditions that were built in the intertestamental period. There's nothing in the Old Testament saying that they cannot be in the presence or go in the dwelling place of a Gentile. But alas, that's how the Jews felt at this time and this place. You can see an example of that in John chapter 18 and verse 28. When Jesus is going through his, uh, his trial, when he's, when he's going through all of the things towards the end of his life, John 18 and verse 28 says, Then they led Jesus from Caiaphas to the praetorium, and it was early morning. But they themselves did not go into the praetorium, lest they should be defiled, that they might eat the Passover. See, that's how the Jews felt at, the, at that time. Jesus obviously did not abide by this tradition. Uh, that had been established. He abides by the law of Moses, and since it is not in the law, 
throughout the Gospels, we can see him eating with tax collectors, publicans, sinners, and that's why the Jews hate him for that. Because he's not following their traditions. But back to the centurion. The centurion is so conscious of Jesus' morality, of Jesus' people, that perhaps he wants Jesus to be able to abide by this moral code at all costs. Lord, do not enter into my home. I am unworthy. Lord, you are so powerful that all you got to do is speak a word, he says. Say the word and it will be done. You know, that statement is something you would hope to hear from a believer. You would hope to hear from a believer, uh, from, from one of the Jewish people, Lord, you don't have to go to this centurion's house. Just say it right here and he'll be healed. You would, you would, you would imagine seeing and witnessing that kind of faith from a believer. But that's not where you see it in this moment. You think you would see this from someone that was looking constantly for the Messiah. But instead it comes out of the mouth of a Roman centurion. And not only is he saying, Lord, you can do this. Ultimately what he's saying is that the ailment, the illness, the paralysis, or whatever the slave had, he's saying that that thing won't have a chance it won't have a chance to go against your word. It won't have any other choice but to disappear. And we can see that in the text in Luke 7. He says, For I also am a man placed under authority, having soldiers under me. And I say to one, Go, and he goes, and to another, Come, and he comes, and to my servant, Do this, and he does it. What he's saying by that phrase is he's saying, I'm in charge of men. I'm in charge of people. As a Roman centurion, I tell people what to do, when I say jump, they say how high. He's saying when it comes to you, Lord, you have the authority over all creation. And so if you speak the word, this paralysis, this ailment, this illness will be gone. And it is because of this evident faith from an unexpected source that we see Jesus have the response that we see in this text. Matthew passage says, When Jesus heard it, he marveled. And he said to those who followed, Assuredly, I say to you, I have not found such great faith, not even in all Israel. And I say to you that many will come from the east and the west and sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, but of the sons of the kingdom will be cast out into outer darkness there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. What does he say in Luke's account? He says, when Jesus heard this thing, he marveled at him. And he turned around and said to the crowd that followed him, I say to you, I have not found such great faith, not even in Israel. Jesus marveled. Isn't that something that, that is amazing to, to notice? Jesus marveling at something? He's marveling at this centurion's faith. Not in all Israel had he ever seen faith like this avid believer. In Mark chapter 6, verse 6, we see Jesus marveling at someone's unbelief. But that's the only other time we see Jesus marveling at anything. 
Jesus marveled in this moment. Isn't that something hard for us to grasp? Realize who is marveling. Who's doing the marveling here? It's the one who created the heavens and the earth. We're talking about Jesus who walked on water. We're talking about the one for whom the skies opened up and a voice bellowed down from the heavens. This is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. Jesus is marveling at the faith of this centurion. The one who was marveled at throughout his entire ministry. He is the one doing the marveling at this centurion's faith. You know, Matthew includes a, a, a phrase that, the, that Luke does not. And it's obvious why. What does he say about those of the kingdom of heaven and those of the kingdom of the Jews? He says, notice, go back in Matthew chapter 8, he says, and I say to you that many will come from the east and the west and sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, but the sons of the kingdom will be cast out into outer darkness. The sons of the kingdom he's talking about are the Jewish people of the day. He's saying the Jewish people that I am seeing around me today, they are going to think they are going to be able to eat and dine with Abraham and and Jacob and Isaac and all the patriarchs, but in reality, they're going to be the ones cast out into darkness and weeping and gnashing their teeth. He says they will come from the east and the west shows just how vast the number of the lost will be. And in another way, he's insinuating the true purpose of his ministry. That he, that he has come for all men. That he has come to bring all men, all nations, all peoples unto himself. And it's no wonder why Matthew, when you look at this passage, It's no wonder why Matthew would include this miracle in his gospel. He includes this miracle to convince the Jewish audience that they must not be like the Jews of Jesus' day. Matthew chapter 5 and verse 20. Your righteousness must exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. That's what we learn from Matthew's account. It's also no wonder why Luke would include this miracle into his gospel. He included it to convince his Greek or or Gentile audience that Christ was the Messiah to the entire world, not just the Jewish people. He included it to show that Jesus, the Son of God, marveled at a Gentile just like him. You can be just like this Gentile if you have the same faith. Tonight as we look at ourselves, as we start to look at ourselves and and ask, what does the healing of the centurion mean to me? The centurion servant. What what does it mean? I want to notice three things. I want to notice three things. I want to ask you three questions. First question is, do we have the faith that this centurion had? 
second one is, do we have the humility that this centurion had? The third one is, do we have the reverence that this centurion had? When you examine your life, and you start to look at yourself and your soul and the things that you do, the words that you say, the life that you live for Christ, when you examine your prayer life, how bold are you? Are you bold enough to fully believe that Jesus is powerful enough to fix your broken situation? Are you you bold enough like this centurion to say to God, say the word and it will be done? Just like this centurion said. And after saying that, you have absolutely no doubt that God is going to accomplish what you just prayed for. Do you have that same boldness in faith that the centurion had? You see, because if... If I, were to ask, if I were to answer honestly, I would say sometimes, no. Sometimes I do not have the faith that this centurion had. In our prayers, sometimes when we are trying to come across as humble, we actually come across as faithful. Let me explain that. We don't pray boldly as often as we should. Because when we see something monumentally difficult in front of us, that makes absolutely no sense why it should be accomplished. Sometimes half of us are praying about it, and with one half of our soul and our mind and our our heart, we believe that God can do something. But an entire other half of us, the entire other half of our heart, our soul, our brain, we say to ourselves, well, I mean, this is a big thing. I mean, if, this is a big thing, so if God can't pull it off, then hey, who could, right? I mean, we can't fault Him for that. That's how we, we approach prayer sometimes. We approach prayer sometimes apologetically already before we even get started on asking God to help something. We've already defeated ourselves by not having the faith. What did James say in James 1.6? But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for he who doubts is like a wave of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. In 1 John 5, verse 14, we see, Now this is the confidence that we have in him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And we know that he hears us whatever we ask. We know that we have the petitions that we have asked of him. So do you have the faith of the centurion? Do you have a faith that would be marveled at? Or is your faith more like the faith found in Mark 6, 6, where Jesus marvels at your lack of faith? When you look at your heart tonight, do you have the humility that the centurion had? Because the centurion had every right in the world, in, in the world standards, to try to tell Jesus what to do. Instead, he humbled himself to the point that He didn't talk about his good deeds. He didn't talk about his works as a bargaining tool. How many times do we do that? How many times do we list our accomplishments as reasons not to do something? I did the last go and do thing. 
That means I can sit this one out. I went last time, so that means I can take a break this time. I went to Friday night's charge, so that means I don't have to go to Saturday night's charge. I, you fill in the blank. So that means I don't have to, you fill in the blank. We always use this type of mindset from time to time. At least I do. Instead of saying, Lord, I built your people a temple. Lord, I am kind to your people. I love your nation. Lord, I'm not like one of those other centurions. We don't find the centurion saying that. He says, Lord, I am not worthy. James chapter 4 and verse 10 says, Humble yourselves before the Lord and He will exalt you. Finally, when you look at yourself tonight, do you have the reverence that the centurion had? The centurion so revered Jesus that he wouldn't even allow him to come into his house because he didn't find himself worthy. He so revered Jesus that he felt like Jesus entering into his home would make Jesus impure. Do we approach Jesus in the same way? Do we approach Jesus in the way that John the baptizer did in John chapter 1? He says, I am not worthy to loosen the straps of your sandals. Is that how we look at Jesus? Or would we be like the Jewish elite of the day who did not give him a place to stay, but for an entirely different reason than this centurion? Sometimes I wonder how much reverence that we have for Jesus. I wonder if we still understand the concept of reverence sometimes. It's not as simple as just looking up to or respecting someone. To have reverence for something or someone is to regard that person with the highest esteem. To place them at the highest place of honor and status. To give the preeminence to. I want to close with a passage in Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1. Everybody turn to Colossians chapter 1. Starting in verse 15. Paul says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by Him all things were created that are in heaven and are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through Him and for Him. And He is before all things. And in Him all things consist. And He is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things He may have the preeminence. When you look at your life, can you say that in all things Jesus Christ has the preeminence? That in every single aspect of your life and your thoughts and your actions and your words, Jesus Christ has the preeminence. 
I believe that's what we can see in this Roman centurion. We can see in this Roman centurion that he had a faith to be marveled at. We can see that he had a humility to aspire to. And we can see that he had a reverence that all of us, all of us need to think about. I pray that this lesson has encouraged you to think about your life and think about your faith and your humility and your reverence. Let's go to God with a word of prayer as we close. Our God and our eternal Father in heaven, we thank you again for this time of Bible study and the time to open up your word and to look at uh, this amazing story from an unlikely source. This Roman centurion that gives us this example of amazing faith, amazing humility, and an awesome reverence for you. We pray that we will aspire to all three of these things and that we will look to this example and see how we can implement it in our lives each and every day. That we can stop making excuses, that we can stop uh, justifying ourselves by our past good deeds and simply live day by day trying to praise, trying to glorify your name. Thank you for Jesus who gives us this example of when we are faithful, when we are humble, and when we are reverent, he will bless us the way he did this centurion servant. It's in Jesus' name that